0: I'm going to um, wrap up what I've been talking about over the last two weeks. I've been doing this little teaching series called In Christ. And I've been talking a little uh, more about what our walk with God should look like. Right? We, we come to a place of committing our lives to Christ and we say, be the leader of my life, you know, be my Lord, be my Savior. And then, and we, we begin to understand what it means to be a Christian and we begin to walk with God. Um, and so I've been using the word likeness ability over the last while that we have we are made in his image and we're made in his likeness Um, but the likeness is 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 a process we we are in this process of becoming we're called to be like God Jesus says be perfect like I'm perfect in Matthew Uh, Peter quotes the Old Testament where God says be holy like I'm holy so there's this likeness ability process Um, the theological terms you might find around this are justification and sanctification and and all these Asians. I'm not going to go into all that this morning, but it's the process of being made holy through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so over the past two weeks, I've spoken about two important pillars in our walk with God. And if you've missed this, uh, I'd encourage you just to give some thought, just to, uh, and if you've got time, to listen to those talks. Because if, if we're going to have a good, healthy walk with God, then one of the things that has to undergird that is spending time with God. That's what I spoke about two weeks ago. We need to make time to be with God. We live, you know where we live, the kind of world we live in. It is super crazy busy, isn't it? it there's so much going on. You're gonna, many of you will find yourself in a place tomorrow where demands will be made upon you. And some people are in high demand environments, high production. they pressurized environments. It's, the world is, is just, you know, after there was a period during COVID where everything slowed down. People said, you know, there were no more planes in the air. They could see and hear birds again. Nature started to come back, you know. But now we're getting back into that, that treadmill. And, uh, and so um, it's only out of the slowing down, it's only out of spending unrushed time with God that we are truly going to live our lives in accordance with his will and way there's no two ways around that you you have to make time for God you have to make space for some personal devotional time and I encourage you to do that daily I spoke that week and say and I said like take the sabbath take those hours and divide them up over a week you know just to I'm not going to stop talking about this so I might bore you, but I want to encourage you in the right direction. That's my job. I, I get to heaven one day, I want to be able to say, I told them, Lord. <laughs> I want to. And, uh, and then he can sort it out with you. He said, oh, you listened, you didn't. You listened, you didn't. <laughs> you know, I don't know. But uh, I'm, I'm not going to stop saying that it's important that we spend time with God. And then I, I, I spoke last week about our relationship with money. And that is a, another area of our walk with God that we really need to we need to like pull back the layers, man, because we have been so conditioned by the world in which we live. And so we so easily slip into the system of the world. And, but our walk with God, this process of likeness ability, right? I'm talking about a life in Christ. If this is your life and this is Christ, a life in Christ, that taking shape in your life, that being formed in you is, is also going to be marked with a changing relationship to money. You know, they say that it's money that makes the world go around. Have you ever heard that saying? It's money that makes the world go around. But as a Christian, we've got to stop and we've got to say, Lord, what is your way concerning these things? You see, our view of money and finance and economics should be counter to the culture. And all too often we slip into the, the, the system. We slip into the, the culture that, is, that we're surrounded by. And so people who are in relationship with Jesus are called to live according to the ways of God. Not the way of the culture, not according to the systems of this world. And we have to think about that and, be, and cognitively like process that so that we can practically live it out. How much say do you have in your life concerning the activity of God in, in you? 100 percent. all of it. a lot. You do. You've got a lot of say in how much of the activity of God's going to take place in your life. And my hope for our church, my hope for us as a community Renew, is that we're going to live with an awareness of His living and active presence in our lives. We don't live in a two-story world. There are many people who live in a two-story world. Have you ever heard them say, the man upstairs? Better speak to the man upstairs. That's a two-story world. We don't live in a two-story world. God is here. He is present. He is in us by His Spirit. So may we live with that kind of awareness, His presence in our lives, that our lives truly would be found in Christ. See, I get emotional. So I'm going to end this three-week series, and I'm going to come back to the Sabbath because I think this is another big pillar in our walk with God. And it's important, I think, to have a deeper understanding of everything that the the Sabbath entails. And so you're going to have to listen to me this morning to keep up with me and to track along with me. Otherwise, you're going to get lost and you'll walk out of here this morning going, I don't know what on earth that was about. And so I've been praying for you ahead of time that you will absorb what I'm going to talk about this morning. If somebody's got a Bible here this morning, um, we're going to get somebody to read from Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through to 21 in a few minutes. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through to 21. Okay. Um, Can I ask you, has anybody here ever been called useless? Yes, I've heard a few, yeah, yeah. You useless, anybody had something to say? (laughs) Or have you done it? (laughs) Have you called somebody useless? Uh, how does it feel to be called useless? Horrible. Horrible. Yeah. Generally, it's, it's not a nice feeling to be called useless. No, you know, we, we don't want we, we to be told that. We don't want to hear you know, that, that, that we're useless. Uh, in fact, uh, sometimes if people say you're useless and they add other words to it, it's like, it's like a form of abuse. Nobody really wants to be seen as useless. We want to be seen as Useful, don't we? We want to be seen as being useful. Um, but what is useful? What is it to be useful? A useful thing or a useful person is going to gain uh, their value from something other than itself or themselves, right? If, if, if you are going to uh, be useful to me, then that means um, you're going to be doing something or through you I'm going to achieve something and, and so you're useful to me. Right, so if I'm useful, I can be like a tool, or you can be the tool, right? And and so I value the tool because it allows me to do something, to get something done. And in many cases, when the usefulness of the tool is expired, it's simply thrown away. Don't need it anymore. And we live in a throwaway world. We live in a throwaway society, surrounded by things that we just toss away. Well, I don't need it anymore. It's not useful to me. Throw it away. Not only things, but people as well. You have no more, you're not useful. Don't need you anymore. Here's your redundancy, off you go. Bye-bye, don't want you, don't be my friend anymore. You're not useful to me anymore. So we live in that kind of world. And so, you know, it's no surprise that people prefer to see themselves as being useful. Because anything else would be considered to be not nice, right? Horrible, abuse. And you know, it's interesting, even when we're stressed, Even when we're anxious or sick from the fatigue of life, we so often find ourselves justifying our rest, don't we? We're justifying. I've got to justify the fact that I need a break, man. I'm going to charge my batteries. I need to charge my batteries. I need to get my energy back up. And and so we don't even realize that, that we're giving something else our ultimate priority, which is work. We only rest in order to keep going, right, in order to work harder. It's a profound insight into how we use our time. But what I want to talk about a bit today is uselessness. Uselessness. Do me a favor, let's be like a year one class. Okay, class, just say this after me. Uselessness. That's what I want to talk about. Because one of God's first commandments is one of uselessness. Let's go to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, Moses, uh, God, through Moses, speaking to his people here, says, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns, none of you are going to do any work. For in six days... The Lord made heaven and earth, and he made the sea, and all that is in it, and in the heavens and the earth. But he rested on the seventh day, and so the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. And so one day out of the seven that we all get every week is described here as being holy. It's a day on which we are commanded to be useless. And it's for our own good. And it's meant to help us discover that nothing and no one has more value than Jesus. It's supposed to be a day which forms part of God's work within us to make us like himself, forming and shaping us into the likeness of Christ. Now it's interesting, you know, if, you've, if you read the book of Exodus, um, you, you find this Great big clash between the, uh, the Pharaoh in Egypt and, and God. And uh, you know the story. Pharaoh was this very evil man. And he attempted to stamp out the, the fertility and, and, the, uh, and the flourishing of the Israelite people. They were caught up in the system of, of the Pharaoh. And so you know, they were just being abused and, 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 um, and, 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 and trodden down and, and, and used as, 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 you know, they were cast aside if they were no longer any use. To the Pharaoh. And so, what was going on with the Israelite people in Egypt um, was in direct opposition to God's command over his people to be fruitful. And so, you know the story God acts on behalf of his people to release them, to release Israel from their bondage and to establish them as his people. And so, having been released from Egypt, God issues these commandments. He gives them these these commands, he gives them a blueprint for how to live life, right? And so it's, n- it's never just release from, it's release for. One of the commandments is to observe the Sabbath and to keep it holy. And uh, the Ten Commandments, actually, they get a mention in both the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. And in, in both times, the Sabbath commandment has, um, has the longest commentary. If you go read it in the Bible, there's the, the longest commentary forms around this commandment of the Sabbath, In Exodus, the Sabbath is linked to God who created all things and then rested on the seventh day. In Deuteronomy, it's linked to God's act to liberate Israel from Egypt. So Sabbath is about remembering that God creates and God releases. God creates and God releases. Sabbath is about remembering a God of life. A God of life. So the uselessness that's bound up within the Sabbath actually has deep meaning and, 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 and far-reaching uh, application. It represents an entire way of life. And in a way, it becomes the foundation for understanding the kingdom of God itself. Now, just like we see the, the people of, of Israel up against the horror of the system of pharaoh's Egypt, we are up against what the apostle Paul calls the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers and the spiritual forces of evil, who infest the systems of this world. And usefulness, usefulness is a strong value in our world. You know, over the last 200 years, they invented plows and threshing machines to where we are now, you know, making better iPhones and electric cars, figuring out how to make everything faster and cheaper and better, you know, making things that no one has ever dreamed of. And, and, and all of that has been an astounding way to um, uh, build and to grow an economy. And if you link all of that to global trade and the standard of living increases that we've seen around the globe. You know, people now have, I'm going to put it in inverted commas, people have better lives, right? And, and what we see around the globe right now are, are some people getting quite stinking rich. And so if you do this kind of thing for, for, for decades and you link it to the ideas of human individuality and freedom, you can before long begin to think that, hey, we're building better humans. But the genius of this world is not its love for better humans or for what economic growth can do. The world is driven by profitability. We don't necessarily make better products because we need better products, right? We make them so we can sell them. Yeah? Here's the new iPhone, it's the iPhone 357, get it? We make them so we can sell them. We don't even make things to last anymore. Everything's got a lifespan, right? From the time that it's sold to the time it gets discarded, it's got a, it's got a, a lifetime. Why? So that we can keep, keep people coming back to keep buying. It's all about the dollar. And maybe another big motivating factor, which we would call the love of money. And so the problem, of course, is that most human beings still experience a, a, um, a nagging sense That something is not quite right in this world. I sat down to have a piece of toast and a cup of coffee this morning and um, I clicked on my phone, went to my news site to see what's happening and an article popped up from the ABC, a study that's just been done on on the economics uh, around the globe right now and part of that article was saying that two-thirds of the wealth in Australia is owned by... Uh, I think it's 10% of the population. And in the United States, 90% of the financial assets are earned by 10% of the population. By far, the majority of the population have very, very little around the globe. This is a very interesting article. Which is why the uselessness bound up within the Sabbath day has such deep meaning and, and really is far-reaching if we think about it, if this is going to be applied in our lives. You see, the Sabbath day is more than just a day of rest. Like I said, it's actually an expression of an entire way of life. And it's quite deeply bound up in the whole question of justice. For ancient Israel, the Sabbath day was only a small part of a larger understanding of time and the stewardship of creation. And so you go back to the Old Testament and you find that one day in every week, you were not allowed to work, right? No work to be done on the seventh day or the the Sabbath day. One year out of every seven years had to be set aside. You you, you couldn't work the fields. The fields had to lie fallow. You couldn't plow the land, right? For an entire year, that land had to be left every seven years. After seven seven seven-year cycles, a 50th year was to be set aside. And in each seventh year, not only was the land supposed to just be left in life fallow, but debts were supposed to be cancelled. It was the same in the 50th year, but also in the 50th year, land reverted back to its original ownership. And the 50th year began on the Day of Atonement and was known as the Jubilee Year. I spoke about that last week. Now in the preaching of the prophets, particularly Isaiah this image of the management of debts and land is given a cosmic interpretation in addition to its place in the annual cycle of, of Israel. The jubilee year becomes the acceptable year of the Lord. The acceptable year of the, of the Lord. A coming day when the whole of creation is going to be set free. A coming of jubilee for everyone and everything. And when Jesus stands up in the synagogue to read the scriptures in Nazareth, he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, and it's the passage which speaks about this coming act of of, of forgiveness and of forgiveness of debt and, and and of freedom. So Luke chapter four verses sixteen to to twenty one. Who's got it? Okay, Vlaster, you can read it for us this morning. Don't rush. Take your time so we all keep track. Despair. Hold the mark to your mouth. That's right. Don't
1: mess up. (laughs) I'll do my best. (laughs) I won't be useless. (laughs) He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, "Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing."
0: Thank you. So Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. And this passage that he reads from Isaiah is a, 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 is, is a declaration of what he's going to do. Right? He's telling them what's going to happen. He's going to go and preach. And Matthew tells us and the, the, the Gospels tell us that when Jesus started his ministry, what, did he, what words did he use? He came along and he said, the kingdom of heaven has drawn close to you. The kingdom of heaven has drawn near. The kingdom of God is at hand. And the scripture describes what that looks like. What's he talking about when he talks about the kingdom of God? He's talking about the rule and reign of God. He's saying, you want to know what the right way is? This is what it's about. The kingdom of heaven has drawn close to you. That's what Jesus does over here. And so he says, this is what it it entails. The poor are going to hear good news. Captives are going to be set free. The blind will receive their sight. The oppressed will be given liberty. And, and as Jesus progresses in his ministry, you find almost this cosmic loosing take place just day after day as he begins to minister and heal and, and, and cast demons out and, 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 and teach people. And it's not for nothing that Jesus seems to prefer the Sabbath day above all others for doing this work. And so what Jesus does here is he reveals the true meaning and purpose of the Sabbath. It's not just a time to try and avoid activity and focus on ourselves or our favorite hobbies, Sabbath is also a time where we take stock of our lives, where we take stock of our communities and our world, where in the power of the Holy Spirit, we look at our lives and we say, God, what is out of line with your will for my life? We're in the power of the Spirit. We say, what, if, what am I still in bondage to? What are am, what am the idols in my life? What is in opposition, God, to your creative, liberating and restoring work? There's so much more to this time. It's a time where we come to an awareness of God so that we can be better postured for what God has released us from and what God has released us for. He has released each and every one of us. If we've made that step to believe in him, we have been released from enslavement to the bondage of sin. By faith, we have been made right with God so that now we can participate in making right everything that is wrong every day of the week. Which brings me back to uselessness. Because today we'd look at a, piece of land that's lying fallow, you know, it hasn't been plowed, and the experts would come and say, well, that's a primitive uh, way of crop, doing crop rotation. Crop rotation is a, is a more useful way to look at that, right? You know, it's, that's responsible agriculture. It's just crop rotation. It's useful. But missed the point. The land lying fallow, crop rotation is not, is not the purpose here. No, no. This is about a deliberate interruption of the cycle of productivity and the maximizing of profit. What the Sabbath does is it says, no, there's something more important. Productivity and profit are not all there is to life. For ancient Israel, the forgiveness of debt and the practice of Sabbath rest for the people and the land and the animals came to be written into their very fabric of life. This was God's way. And even in the non-Sabbath years, you know there was a prohibition against harvesting an entire field. You couldn't have maximum efficiency. It was like, whoa, hang on a sec, leave a little bit on the sides there, leave a little bit of the crop so that the poor can come and they can glean from the field so that they can have food to eat. That was God's way. Sabbath for Israel was about unlearning Egypt. And I tell you this morning, it's the same for us. We've got to unlearn the systems of this world into which so many of us get sucked Unlearning Egypt, unlearning its economics, which prized productivity over people. Sabbath was about unlearning Egypt's misuse of power and reliance on fear by robbing people of a future. Work, 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 die. Finished. Next. Sabbath was about unlearning Egypt's arrogance which was personified in Pharaoh, who held in his heart no fear of God, no fear of God, no fear that material blessings don't reflect divine blessings. But more than unlearning, Sabbath was about learning. What is it that God demands? And you see, this is what we have to learn. We have to learn that it is not all up to us. And our worth is not found in our productivity or our busyness or our usefulness. Learning Sabbath is about jubilee. Sabbath is about the justice and the equality that comes through the restoration of land, the setting free of slaves, the the wiping clean of debt so that people don't get stuck into cycles of poverty, so that disparity in wealth and health and opportunity will not be passed across the generations. Sabbath was about learning to be a people whose lives are shaped by God and God's reign. And folk, Sabbath gives us a radical understanding of the purpose of human existence. When you come to Jesus in scripture, you don't find Jesus displaying any new attitude when it comes to the meaning of Sabbath. Or when it comes to the poor and the oppressed. What was new was he's willing to practice it and extend those principles to everything and everyone. You just take debt and the forgiveness of debt as an example. Jesus drew that into his teaching of the kingdom of God, right? In fact, he he drew that into his own death and, 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 and resurrection, the cancellation of our record of debt, our spiritual debt of sin. And, of course, over the centuries, Jesus' teachings and those of Scripture have been obscured. You know, the early church still lived by the principle that you did not charge interest on loans, There was no usury; It wasn't charged in accordance with the teaching of Scripture. But in history, you see it begin to change. By the 16th century, Martin Luther still condemned the charging of interest utterly. John Calvin, on the other other hand, decided, no, no, you can charge a little bit of interest, but it, it mustn't be exorbitant. And you know, when I begin to talk about this, and when anybody begins to talk about this, those people who seek power and wealth kind of get a little bit uncomfortable. This teaching is a bit inconvenient. Right? That's been the way through, through the centuries. And eventually what happened was it received a more convenient interpretation. Usury came to mean more exorbitant interest on debt. And that's, that's the basis of our present debt laws. But isn't it strange that the highest interest allowed in our economy here in Australia is on those cash loans, right? Those money lenders. They advertise on TV, you need a loan? Did the highest interest comes from those people through that consumer credit. And the people who get burdened with that are predominantly those who don't have much. Predominantly the poor. Those who can least afford it. The cheapest interest rates go to the biggest borrowers. It's interesting the way the world works. and. We have this drive in the world in which we live for this, it's this perpetual drive for usefulness, usefulness, usefulness. And over the centuries, you see productivity almost becoming like a religious virtue. Do you know in England, (laughs) before the um, abolishment of Roman Catholicism under Henry VIII, or uh, uh, just after that, a whole new way way of life began to take shape. They, They got around 50 days per year on the medieval calendar which were marked as festival days, days of festival and church. That was the order of the day, not normal work. 50 days of useless celebration, in addition to the 52 Sundays of the year, to the glory of God. But you track along to the early 1900s, and here comes Max Weber, 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 who wrote about the, he wrote about the Protestant work ethic. Anybody ever heard of that, Protestant work ethic? And he boasted about the superior productivity of the Protestant Northern Europe to the lazy Catholic Southern Europe. And he forgot to note that in that new Protestant calendar, they added seven weeks worth of working days to the calendar. Because it's easy to be more productive when work never stops. And the work ethic has become a cultural ethic. It is embedded into how we live our lives these days. It's become a system of this world all across the world. It's Egypt all over again. It wasn't that long ago that Western Australia was closed on a Sunday. Anybody remember those days? I got here just after. I was like, when I was coming, my mate said to me, don't go to the shops on a Sunday, it's all closed. I was like, yeah, that's where I want to be. And then they changed it. And so what we've seen is this 24-7 world just creep in and creep in. And yeah, yeah, you know, we get to take a holiday every now and again, but so that we can come back energized and charged up and be better workers. Too few things are done for their own sake. And so what we learn is that this uselessness, taking time to stop, Not maximizing our power and efficiency all the time goes to the very heart of what it means to exist in the image and likeness of God. When life becomes driven by usefulness, we so often land up ignoring the things that have the most value. And those things are all too easily deemed useless. The prophet Amos made this observation in Amos chapter 8. He said, Hear this, you people who trample on the needy and bring to ruin the poor of the land. You guys are out there, you're saying, when, When's this jolly new moon going to be over? When's, it, when's, when, when's the Sabbath time going to be finished? Because we want to sell our grain, right? We've got wheat that we want to sell. When's the Sabbath going to be done? We're going to make the ephah small, right? The ephah, I don't know how to pronounce that, but that was the, the thing that they would measure the grain that they would sell. We'll make it small. We'll make the shekel great. What's the shekel? The currency, the dollar, right? We'll make, you know what we're going to do? We're going to practice deceit with false balances. We are going to be crooked accountants. We're going to have another set of books. They're going to be dodgy. We like that because it's all about the money. We'll buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. You know what? We'll give them as much as they, just that little bit so that we can get the maximum bit out that we need from them. We'll we'll just give them a little, and we're going to take. We're going to get our pound of flesh from them. We're going to sell the sweepings of the wheat, the chaff that falls to the ground that actually has no nutrient value. Uh, No, no, sweep it up, sweep it up. We'll sell it. I love this little passage here because we live in a world where not much, not, not much, has changed since this time. And and when we fail to honor God's way. We forget how and why we live. And so if you are someone who wants your life to be found in Christ, if you are someone who said to yourself, I want to grow in Christ-likeness, I want to be all who God has called me to be, then I want to encourage you this morning in your walk with God. Let the Sabbath serve as a reminder that the God who created the cosmos right, to flourish harmoniously is the God who acts to liberate you from the powers of evil and the forces of exploitation. But you have a say. How much of God's way are you going to surrender to? The Sabbath is not just an abstract time of rest. Yes, it is about rest, but it is grounded in God's identity and your identity as a child of God. Sabbath is a time that has been given so that we can remember and join in with what God has done and what God is doing and what God will do. And I want to encourage and perhaps challenge all of you this morning. I don't know what your seven days look like in a week. I don't know what your 52 weeks in a year look like. I don't know what the cycle of years looked like in your life, but if all you're doing is spending your time running around, doing the sh- going off to church, I've got to go get the shopping, I've got to get this done, I've got to get that done. Check, 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 check. Tick, tick, tick. Got to get this usefulness, usefulness, efficiency, productivity. Got to get this done. Got it. To- if that is what your life is consumed with, your life is not being lived in accordance with what God would have for you. God asks you to take time, to clear space, to have that rest, to reflect on your relationship with Him, to be open to what needs to change in your life. If you do that, you're going to see more of God's blessing in your life. You'll be able to smell the aroma of the roses and the coffee when you sit down at a coffee shop and go, I'm just going to be useless for the next two hours. I'm just going to thank God for what He's doing. I'm going to be open to what the Spirit's saying to me. I really want to encourage you. I've spoken this last three weeks about our lives in Christ. And that's where God wants us to be. Our lives get found in Christ. But we have a say we have a say. And so I want you to ask yourself, how does this become part of my life? How does this become part of my life? I'm not asking you to worry about the bigger picture stuff. I'm asking you to say, how does this become part of my life? Amen. Amen.